Let me ask you this. When you were growing up, when you were a little kid, did you have a rich friend? You know, you needed a rich friend, right? Because your rich friend had all the cool toys, right? The ones that you didn't have, right? I had a rich friend. And because, and you knew back in my day, you knew he was a rich friend because he had the Millennium Falcon, right? Like that was like, that was the be all end all. So I was born in 70, right? Get used to it. There it is. I was born, and which means I was about seven, eight years old when the original Star Wars movie came out. I remember seeing it in the theater because that's the only way you could see it in that time, right? Like, uh, and then after that, that led to the toy craze, all the action figures and the vehicles and all that. And if you had serious money, you could get the Millennium Falcon. I did get curious, like, can you still get it today? Found it on Amazon. In case you have $1,119, you can get that. Now, you'll notice there's only one left in stock. So whoever gets there first, get your phone out, right? Wow, wow. Like I said, only the rich kids had that. It wasn't that much back in the day, but you get the idea. Uh, here's the thing about having that uh, rich kid uh, that you'd play with his toys. If the cool kids came around, you made fun of the rich kid behind his back. Now, maybe you didn't have an experience. It sounds like an after-school special, right? So you can at least understand what I'm talking about. The thing is, you didn't want the rich kid. You just wanted his toys. And my fear is that we treat God like that. That God, in the universe, nobody's richer than that kid, right? So he, like he's got great toys. And I think maybe we don't want God, we just want his stuff. And that's what Psalm 16 is all about. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So I want you to really pay attention because we're going to have it read to us this morning by Danae. So listen to this, if you will. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is Psalm 16. Now it actually begins this way. It says Psalm 16, a mictum of David. That's the heading that you'll find in your Bible. A little tidbit for you. When you go through your Bible, there's headings in there and sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're not. You got to know those were added by human beings after the fact. That's not a part of God's word. Don't let it mislead you. However, there are some times where God put the heading in a lot of times in the Psalms. So when it starts out and says a mictum of David, actually God put that one there. That's part of the word of God. What the heck's a mictum? Isn't that a cure for athlete's foot? 
That's Mycotin, right? But, uh, like, I, so we, we actually, scholars have no idea what a mictum is. It's a, an obscure musical term lost to time, unfortunately. Here's what we do know about Psalm 16, though. Psalm 16 is about our idolatry. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute, we, we don't... I mean, how many of you have a stone or wooden carved idol at home that you bow down to each other? We don't do that. So we don't have idols, do we? Oh, we have idols. An idol, an idol is something you have to have. It's what makes life make sense. It's at the center of your life in some way. You depend on it. You hope in it. You trust in it. It gives life meaning for you. Oh, we've got those. We've got lots and lots of idols. One of the ways to get at an idol is to ask the question, do you add an O or subtract an O? What do I mean by that? This is adding an O. When God becomes your good. In, in verse 2, David says, I have no good apart from you. I mean, like just you, God. Not your toys, just you. I, you are my good. I just want God. I want him, nothing else. God becomes my good. That's adding an O. Unfortunately, in our idolatry, what we often do is subtract an O. And so something good becomes my God. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing, but I've let it right into the center of my life. Something good becomes my God. So you got to ask yourself, and this is what Psalm 16 is poking at, is does God become your good? You just want him? Or does something good become your God? And that's idolatry. Now, verse 4 warns us that idolatry is going to tear you up. Okay? When something good becomes your God, it eventually turns bad. It says the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So, so when you run after idols, not only do you have sorrows, but they, they tend to be exponential. They multiply, and that's true. Because God tells us the truth. God wants to bless us. Your idols don't love you. Your idols are lying to you. Your idols are bent on your destruction. Now, granted, they'll often start as something good. At first, idols seem good. Listen, let's talk about sin for a second. Sin's fun. Maybe you didn't expect a pastor to say that. Can we just be honest? If sin weren't fun, nobody'd do it, right? Sin's fun, at least at first. But eventually, it's like a ticking time bomb in your life. Eventually, it's going to blow up and destroy you. That's what your idols do. For example, nobody wakes up someday and thinks, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I want to become a strung out addict. Like, like stealing from my family to support my habit. It'll destroy my relationships, my job, my life. It's going to blow up. I wonder where I can get some drugs. And nobody does that. What happens is somebody says, hey, try this. It's an incredible high. And you hit it. And you go, wow, I feel good. I feel good. Tick, tick, tick. Eventually it blows up and it destroys your life. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Our addicts know it. Those in recovery, uh, we've got tons of them here. They know it, but it's true for all of us. 
That's what happens from our, our idolatry. Now, in contrast to that, here's what David said in verse 2. He said, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, it's kind of like, well, duh. So you said to the Lord, he's your Lord. Like that, well, okay. But you'll notice the words look a little bit different. The first one's in all caps. The second one isn't. That's because in the Hebrew, they're actually two different words. In all caps, that represents Yahweh, the proper name of God, the one that he revealed to Moses and said, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. In Hebrew, that's Yahweh. It's the name of God. So I said to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. Adonai means you're my master. You're the controller of my life. So David is saying to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. Now, the reality is most of us say, Yahweh, you are God. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But notice we didn't call him Adonai because something else is often in that control center of my life. And I'm unwilling to say that he is my controller, my Lord. Most people believe in God as God without submitting to him as their Lord, where God becomes their good. See that? David says, Yahweh, you are my Adonai. And he, he kind of underscores it. In verse 1, he says, in you I take refuge. God's his refuge. He just wants to be with God. Verse 2, I, I mentioned already, I have no good apart from you. God is my good. Verse 5, Yahweh is my chosen portion. You give me a choice of everything, I choose Yahweh. That's all I want, thanks. Verse 8, I have set Yahweh always before me. He's at the center of my life. He's my focus. Verse 11, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. just, Just to be in your presence, I'm full. I'm good, thanks. It says in your presence. Presence is a great word to tease it out a little bit because there's presence and there's presence, right? Look at it. God's presence not his presence is the highest good. We want him, not his toys. Yeah, he's rich. We want him, not his toys. That's what this is about. God is the richest kid in the universe. He's got tons of great toys, but we're coming to a point where we say we actually love him. We want him, not his stuff. And God becomes my good. I just want God. Being with him is the highest good that I will ever seek. That's what Psalm 16 is poking at. And C.S. Lewis had a marvelous way of saying it in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He put it this way. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. You feel that? God is my good. So Psalm 16 is saying we don't want his stuff, we just want God himself. And if we as disciples of Jesus can get there, then there are some benefits in our life that this psalm points out. The first one is contentment. And you'll see that in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 uses words like portion, lot, lines, inheritance. To an ancient Jew, that is clearly about the land. You see that? My my lot, where the lines of my property 
fall. If you give me my choice of my portion of all the land, I choose Yahweh. That's my portion. He's my portion. That's my choice. So this would be all about the land to an ancient Jew. And what this, this Jew, David's a Jew, what he's saying is, I'm content because whatever he has chosen for me, I'm good with. God is my good, so I, I'm content. First, he is my good, and so I only need him. But secondly, he's my Adonai, so I am under his sovereign lordship. Whatever he's chosen for me, I'm okay with. He's God, I'm not. And when, when we get there, then we get to a point where we can be settled. Do you want to be settled, content, at peace? A lot of times we're not settled in that peace, and that's an indication of an idol in our lives. When you're consumed with fear, when anxiety, I understand there are anxiety disorders, that's not what I'm talking about, but there are ways in which our idols cause anxiety because when we're clinging to those things, we're not content. And so this is an opportunity for God to be my good. I can live not hurried, not worried. I can drop my shoulders. I can breathe. I can be at peace. I'm content because I've got God. Contentment is one. Now, a second benefit is security. Security because the, the one that has become my good never changes. The, the problem with idols is they flip all over the place, right? I'm secure because God is my good. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. That's security. Right? Then you will be preserved because the one who never changes has become your hope and joy. You see that? Contrast that with our idols who always change. There's no security there. Let's be honest for a moment. One of the biggest idols that we have in this room right here is our kids. Remember, I said it can be a good thing. Kids are a good thing. They're a lousy God thing. Right? But if we're honest, (laughs) I feel you, brother. Uh, If we're honest, within the church, kids are a very common idol. And, and that, man, when you put your hope in your kids, that lacks security because eventually they start selling drugs. Oh, is that just my kid that did that? Okay. <sighs> your kids weren't perfect either, so shut up, right? So, but the point is that you put your hope in that kid to be your idol and your kid is not a good God. And they mess up. Listen, life will hurt. Life will hurt. And if you put your hope in an idol, then when life hurts, you're going to be wrecked. It'll be unbearable. Your, Your sorrows will multiply. But if you put your hope in the one true God, your God has become your good. Yahweh is your Adonai then when life hurts, it will hurt, but it will be bearable because you will dwell in security before God. Jim Elliott had a great way of putting this. You might recognize his name. He's a famous missionary to the Aku Indians. Uh, they were a uh, 
headhunting tribe. They actually killed Jim as Jim was trying to get to them to share the gospel. He gave his life in trying to get the gospel to them. But this is a great line that a lot of us have heard before that, that Jim Elliott said. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Take it to the bank. You will lose your idols. There's no security in those. When you give up your idols to gain God, you gain. That's just common good, common sense. That's security. So we get contentment. We get security. And we get eternity. See, so far we've been talking about the benefits of making God our good in a broken, fallen world while we live out here and now. But verse 10 in Psalm 16 starts to look past this life to the next. And here's what it says. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is the place of the dead. So you're not going to abandon me to death. Now listen. Listen. If the fleeting pleasures, even good things in this passing world, this broken, fallen world, if those something in there has become your God, your idol, oh my goodness, death is terrifying, isn't it? Death is terrifying because at death, what will happen is you'll be separated from your idol, the thing you love and trust in and hope in, and you can't have that, and so it's scary. But we have the opportunity as disciples of Jesus to put our hope in the presence of God. And when we get there, there's no fear of death. Yahweh is my Adonai. The highest good thing that I have is his presence. And guess what happens when I die? I get more of his presence. I don't have to fear death because God is my good. By the way, speaking of verse 10, I wonder if it sounds familiar to you, because it appears elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, it'll be quoted in the New Testament a couple times. One of the times particularly is, it's a, about a thousand years after David was led by God to pen this psalm. About a thousand years later is Pentecost. If you remember what happened is Jesus was crucified, he buried, rose from the dead, and then he commanded the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and the Holy Spirit will empower them to go be his witnesses and all that. So, But wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. So they're actually huddling, kind of afraid, what's going to happen? Jesus just died, now he's gone, what's going on? Because uh, he rose into heaven. And so uh, they're afraid, and then boom, just as promised, Pentecost happens. And what that means is these like wild tongues of fire came and were dancing on their heads. Weird. And then they start talking in foreign languages that they didn't know. They'd never studied and all of a sudden they're speaking these foreign languages. Why? Because Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. And so Jews from around the world that speak different languages, but they're Jewish, they come to Jerusalem for that celebration. And now the disciples are preaching the gospel to them in their own native tongue that the disciples don't even know. Really cool, right? So they thought they were drunk. (laughs) And, And so Peter then stands up and he starts delivering this sermon. His first point is to say, we are not drunk as you think, because it's only the third hour. Now, 
Third hour, so Jews start counting time at 6 a.m., uh, ancient Jews at least, uh, and so the third hour makes it 9 a.m. So if you look at what Peter's saying, it's kind of funny. He's saying, listen, it's only 9 in the morning, so obviously we're not drunk. So if Pentecost had happened to happen at 9 p.m., I don't know, could be the Holy Spirit, could be the booze, we're not sure, but it's 9 a.m., so it's clearly the Holy Spirit. I'm like, Peter, you could have tightened that one up, bud, you know? <laughs> But he goes on, he gives this amazing sermon. And he talks about the plan of God. He talks about Jesus, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, that God did not abandon his Holy One to corruption, right? So Acts chapter 2, he's talking about Jesus. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he's going to quote Psalm 16 at length. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life you will make me, uh, excuse me, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And the point is that Jesus is the perfect, literally the perfect example of living out Psalm 16. Think about it. It's not that life doesn't hurt. Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, the perfect one, got crucified. You think that hurt? Life hurt for Jesus, but God was his good. Yahweh was his Adonai. He just dwelt secure and content in the presence of his father. That's all he wanted was just to be with God. And so he had peace and he had joy and he had fullness of joy, fulfillment. He was settled. Jesus was the whole time. And then he went home to God the Father. He he didn't abandon him to Hades, again, the place of the dead. But he went home to the Father. And when he did, do you think Jesus was disappointed? No. Got the face of his Father. Loved it. Listen, Psalm 16 is all about being like Jesus. Just go be like Jesus like he did where we want God the Father, not his rich toys. I just want the presence of God. That's it. And that's what Jesus did. Now, Peter ends by quoting the end of the psalm. We actually haven't looked at it yet. Let's look at it back in Psalm 16, verse 11. Here's how it ends. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a picture of going on a walk with God down the path of life. It's a walk called life. Now, Shannon and I often go for walks in our neighborhood around in the evening. The same, I I am who I am, all right? The same route every time. Don't veer. Same route. Walk around our neighborhood. Sometimes we take our dog Vita. Sometimes we don't. We'll usually see deer and bunnies, some tree rats. You call them squirrels. Uh, 
There was a couple weeks we were seeing an owl. That was pretty cool. Now, lately, what we talk, okay, one of our neighbors cut down this ginormous tree and he left like this 10 foot stump sticking up, painted it white, put this grid of black lines on it. And there's some metal, metal sculpture on top. We cannot tell what it is. We talk about it every walk. What is going on there? We don't know. So we go on this walk together. Listen, it's not exercise. We're not running an errand. We have no destination. You know what we're doing? We're being together. That's it. Shannon and our staff wives are on a retreat this weekend. You know what? I didn't go on a walk. You know why? There's no point. The whole point of the walk is to be with Shannon. If Shannon's not there, what's the point? That's Psalm 16, verse 11. To, to go on a walk with God through life is the point. If you don't have his presence, what's the point? If you do, let's go, God. Let's do this walk together. Hand in hand with Jesus walking through life. And the presence of God is all I want on that walk. So my question is this. We're in the first month here of, of the year. As you look down the road for 2023... Will you go on a walk with Jesus this year? I've been practicing something lately called the daily office. It's a really confusing title for us today. Like, what, what? It comes from monastic life, monks. And all it means is to have prayer at set times during the day. Times where I uh, regularly connect or reconnect with God. And the reason why is because if we're honest, either we don't spend time with God on this walk, which is pointless, or what we do is we have a 15-minute devotional, check the box and say, see you tomorrow, God. And that's not soaking in the presence of God. And so what I do, first thing I wake up, that's the first, first time. And so what I do is I receive the day as a gift from God and I give it back to him in worship. And I say, God, would you walk with me today? I just want to spend time with you. And then breakfast is a connect point. I do something different at breakfast time. My commute in, there's something I'm praying through intentionally on my commute. I have something specific I do at lunch. And again, like just small things, right? Because you're like, all day long? Like at lunch, then my commute home, and then something either before or after dinner, that, that includes scripture as well, and then uh, before bed, reviewing the day and thanking him. Points are the, so so that I don't get too far in my day without remembering the presence of God in my life. God is my good. And I want to soak in the good stuff. The good stuff is God. Maybe you'll do something like that this year. Or, at the very least, would you be willing to pray a prayer like this? God, if you give me one thing, give me you. Give me your presence. Let me simply walk with you, be with you, hear from you, enjoy you. That is the gift I seek. Everything else is fool's gold. May I just be with you. In fact, I'll give you an opportunity to pray that. Why don't you bow your heads with me? And I, I'm going I'm to line this one out in, in the quietness of your heart. You can pray it to the Lord if you desire. Look, 
There's absolutely no purpose in strong-arming you to praise something to God that you don't feel. Like, if you're not there, that's fine. We love you. Take your time. But if you're there, pray after me. God, if you give me one thing, give me you. Give me your presence. Let me simply walk with you, be with you, hear from you, enjoy you. That is the gift I seek. Everything else is fool's gold. May I just be with you. Our great Father in heaven, I hope you've heard your people's prayers. I know you have. We want to come before you humble and repentant though because we, we got to be honest with you, Lord. We have treated you like the rich kid. We don't want you. We just want your stuff. How foolish. How short-sighted. How empty. And we turn from that. We turn to you and we say, God, we want you. If you give us one thing, just give us you. Would you take our hand in yours and could we just go on this walk, this adventure called life, spend it with you, come what may. God, we want you. And right now we want to we worship you because you are God, you are our good. And we pray to you in Christ's name, amen.